Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, host of the Boiling Point podcast. My co-host, Dave Vale, and I will bring you thoughtful discussions with leaders who are positively impacting our world. This is The Boiling Point, where leadership and inspiration meet. Hi, Dave. Hello, Emily. We've done hundreds of these, and yet it's always a little embarrassing when the when when the guest is listening to me in particular scramble to try to make the right person the host and all this kind of thing. It's amazing to know that we've actually done this, this as many interviews as we have over the years, and, and even just you and I. And previous to that, it was like six or seven years with Greg Hemmings. The way to make these successful is to not have me do anything technical. Is what I've concluded. <laughs> Oh, I think you need to give yourself more credit than that. You're, uh, we we always figure it out though. We always get to the record, <laughs> like, and there's always sound miraculously. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I think you've jinxed us, Emily. So hopefully not. Uh, today we got an exciting guest today, don't we? We do. So Andy Posner is with us. Actually, I said Posner. Maybe it's Posner. We'll get him to actually correct how I then say his name. Andy, welcome. Okay, how do you say your last name? I should have known this. Oh, no worries. It's Posner, like Edgar Allan Posner. It is Posner. Okay, that's what I thought. And then I was like, and I've actually, I've heard you. I've heard your TED Talk. And then I was like, wait a minute, as it came out of my mouth. So welcome to The Boiling Point. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, you were kind of referred to us by Jackie Russell of Teak Media and Communication, who has also been a fellow guest on The Boiling Point. Oh, very cool. I didn't know that she had been a guest. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, she has. We had a really interesting and informative conversation um, around her. And in uh, reading more about your work and your bio, I can see how you two are connected. Yeah, well, I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, so in typical Boiling Point uh, style, we will have you just introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about you, about um, Capital Good Fund, and and what it is that you are doing. Yeah, uh, I'll give the brief overview of myself and our work. Uh, So I started the organization in uh, February of 2009. At the time, I was studying, getting a master's in environmental studies at Brown University, And I had always been interested in the intersection of poverty, climate, race, and um, sort of environmental justice writ large. Um, So I was studying financing mechanisms for clean energy. There was a lot of innovation happening in that space at the time. And of course, this was right after the financial collapse. So, you know, when Lehman Brothers went under and people started losing their jobs and homes, I didn't really understand the connection between, you know, Lehman Brothers and a low-income person being uh, laid off because I don't have a background in finance. My my bachelor's is in Spanish and my goal in high school is to drop out and be a pro tennis player. So I decided to try to research this and understand the link between the two. And that's when I came across the issue of redlining, which was kind of racially discriminatory lending practices 
which have continued to this day, although they were outlawed in the 70s. And then I learned about predatory lending, like payday lenders, which charge triple-digit interest rates. So here I was learning about financial services as a tool to unlock, say, clean energy or energy efficiency, realizing it could also be a tool of oppression for minorities and, and immigrants and low-income people, and decided to start an organization that would really operate at the intersection of those things, which again, aligned with what I was interested in to begin with. So I actually wrote my master's thesis on what I called green microfinance that then became Capital Good Fund. And when I graduated, I was in a fortunate enough position to be able to give it a go. Um, and, you know, it had legs. One of the advantages I had was that I didn't know any better because, I, again, I'm not a banker. So a lot of the bankers I talked to, talk to, they said, oh, there's no way you can make loans to low-income people and they'll pay you back. And I was like, really, though? Is that true? And so what we do as a nonprofit lender is provide financial services to low-income people across a couple different thematic areas, but again, always thinking about upward mobility and uplift and advancing a green economy. So we do loans for things like applying for citizenship or getting a green card. We do loans for residential energy efficiency and solar. And we'll talk a little bit later about our soon-to-be-launched solar leasing program. And then we also have a small dollar consumer program. So think of a domestic violence survivor who needs a loan for a security deposit or a single dad who needs to fix his car so he doesn't lose his job and that sort of thing. Um, and we now operate in 10 states. We have lent out $35 million to almost 13,000 families and our repayment rate is 96.8%. Again, you know, the bankers I met with early on, they said, oh, you know, this will never work. And like I said, you know, and I've just proved them wrong. So it's 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 not that it's been easy, but we're, we're proving that it can work. I'm so happy we get guests to introduce themselves because Andy, that was a really excellent introduction. And there's so many pieces of that that I'd like to jump into. It was interesting when you talk about environmental justice. And, and before we started recording, you know, the fact that you're in Southern California, there's a big hurricane hit. And we're just talking about climate change and, and everything that's going on. But when you say environmental justice, what, what are you meaning by that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because 15 years ago, this was a little bit more of a nascent concept. And for many years, I was struggling to get people on board with the idea that a solar loan would connect to our core mission of creating pathways out of poverty. Uh, fortunately, I think people have caught up with that. I mean, it, basically, you know, you can look at this from a number of angles. But regardless, when you look at who is disproportionately impacted by climate change, directly and indirectly, it's Indigenous people, people of color people with disabilities, basically marginalized people with less power and less wealth. Um, you know, and so that's true when there's a storm, you know, people who can evacuate versus who cannot. And this was already back when Hurricane Katrina hit, um, we could see that very visibly. But, you know, when there's extreme heat events, the people that don't have solar and storage, they run out of electricity, or they can't keep their AC on and they die. Um, you look at people who are in more in areas with more pollution, you know, coal plants and gas plants and uh, cement factories, they're all located in these communities. So across a whole range of uh, um, thematic areas, um, there's environmental injustice. So now we're at a place where we have the tools we need to advance a green economy. We have low-cost solar, we have low-cost wind, we have low-cost batteries, even electric vehicle prices are coming down. So the whole question is, are we going to make sure that the benefits of a clean economy are equally shared, or are we going to have a scenario in which 
people like myself, I have solar on my roof. I have battery storage. I have electric vehicles. I pay nothing for energy. If there's a power outage, I'm fine. Are all the benefits of that economy going to accrue to people like me and leave the people behind that I serve? Or are we going to really lift all boats, which is an unfortunate you know, climate-related um, metaphor? But that's really what it's about. And, and beyond that, you know, we, we have the Inflation Reduction Act, but that's not enough to solve the climate crisis. We're going to need, over the next 50 years, continued political buy-in for ongoing policy to implement solutions. And I don't think you can expect that from communities that see no benefit from clean energy. You know, if I'm low income and I see I go into a rich neighborhood and everyone has a solar panel and none of the people I know have a solar panel, that's one thing. If I have a solar panel and I see it on my neighbor's homes, now I'm literally bought in. If I get a job at a solar manufacturing plant, I'm bought in. And it's not just solar, but just an example. So I feel very strongly about this link between climate and justice. With your loans that you are giving out, and that's a huge payback, 96.8%. Do you provide like coaching services also that go along with that? Or is it just the funding that you provide through Capital Good Fund? So we do offer a one-on-one financial and health coaching program. But interestingly, we don't require that people do financial coaching to get a loan. They're separate product offerings with overlap between the two for sure. But there's a very specific reason why we don't require coaching. And it comes down to our philosophical approach to how we treat underserved people. In the nonprofit world, and also just in our economy writ large, there's this attitude that people are poor because they're irresponsible, they're lazy, they don't know how to manage their money. We very much believe that poverty is a function of not having enough money to manage and not a lack of knowledge of how to manage your money. And that's an important distinction. If anything, to be poor in America and stay alive, you have to be more adept at financial management. You know, if Elon Musk buys, I don't know, Twitter and, you know, is is burning his money uh, in a dumpster, it doesn't matter. He can still survive that. A low income or poor family in America, one financial misstep. They take out a loan at the wrong interest rate. They buy a computer that breaks. They're in real deep trouble. So it's not to say that our clients can't benefit from understanding how to manage their money, but that that's not their fundamental problem. It's just a lack of money. So we we really want to get capital into people's hands that's equitable and transparent and responsive and trust them to do what they need with it. Okay. Yeah. And I wasn't I wasn't mentioning that as in that I think that it should be with it. I was just curious because I had I'd heard um a video from a lady who had a loan through you and she spoke about the extra services that she received um, and, and what she learned during that process as well. And it is a very important part of what we do. It's just, we actually initially tried requiring people to get coaching in order to get a loan. And we found that it, it didn't meet people where they were and it also didn't really improve repayment rates. So we now have that model where we say, okay, you need a loan right now. We either feel you're in a position to pay it back and succeed with it or not. And then a lot of our most successful clients get a loan. And then as you saw in that impact video, do financial coaching, because we don't want to just be responsive to emergencies. We do want to build some broader capacity for people to achieve stability. And it's also, I guess, respectful not to say you have to do this, um, because that, that 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 assumes a lot of things, correct? I think that's what I'm hearing sort of maybe philosophically. 
It does. It would be a little bit like, you know, for example, right now as we're recording, the, the Maui is reeling from the, the fire that destroyed, you know, the city of Lahaina and, and other parts of the island. It would be a little bit like going to them right now and saying, well, okay, you need money to eat while you can't go to work and to find loved ones and the like. It would be a little bit like saying, well, but you also need to build a uh, climate resilience plan before we give you the money. The climate resilience plan is essential, but right now they just need the money. And I, I think that's that's a similar an analogy to how we view, you know, when a low-income person comes to us for, for, for capital. You mentioned earlier, like going into this, you know, not knowing what you didn't know. And, you know, I'm, I'm guessing maybe a little naive or, or the bankers that you talked to would have suggested that. How much value do you think there is sometimes going into something, you know, with be, a beginner eyes, you know, like that beginner mindset? I give a lot of talks to high school and college students because I believe very strongly that we need more people to go into the social sector broadly defined, whether that's government, nonprofits or social enterprises. And one of the biggest excuses I hear is, well, I need to go and first gain expertise. You know, I need to go work in McKinsey or JP Morgan. And I think that's a fallacious argument for a couple of reasons, one of which is that, you know, as I noted already, they're not necessarily in a better position to solve these problems than I was when I had no experience. The other one is we just don't have time for people to go and gain that experience. Like there's sort of the net present value of social change where a life change today is worth more than a life change tomorrow. Um, but the thing I always throw in as a caveat is that that doesn't mean you come in without having become an expert in the area. In other words, yes, I didn't have 15 years of lending experience, but I did a lot of research in lending law and underwriting and things like that. So it's not so much a, being, a question of being naive. It is a question of being willing to dive into it to begin with. I mean, a lot of people just don't even bother because they just know, quote unquote, know that it, it doesn't work. But yeah, being a neo, it's different being a neophyte versus having not done any research. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a good distinction. I mean, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs. I, I would throw myself in there. And probably if I knew what I knew now, what I know now, what have I, you know, embarked on in the same way? I'm not sure. You know, like like that's my honest answer. So I'm not sure. And then and and having said that, am I glad I did it? Yeah, hundred percent. But I I didn't anticipate some of the ups, or well, I anticipated some of the ups, but not some of the downs and how low they can be. If that, I don't know if you can relate to that, but that's my that was my sense of what when you said that early on. Yes, that's another thing. Yes, not knowing what I was getting myself into from the vantage point of building and growing and sustaining an entity was certainly to my advantage because yes, it is. I mean, you know, I've been I've been doing this fifteen years. We've had. Fortunately, we've been very stable for four years, but there were three times we almost had to shut down. There's always stressors. So, but to your point, would I have done it anyways? Yes, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I love Dave, how you and I were so often on the same page. If that was exactly what I was thinking that really stood out around Andy saying it's the advantage of not knowing any better. And, and even with that around the like, it almost, it, it gives you permission to do things different because you don't know any other, any other way. And during that, like, you know, who did you really, or like, I would just assume that you would have had to really rely on other people. Um, like, what does your team look like that's kind of behind Capital Good Fund? Yeah. Well, and, and one of the reasons I, I give talks to college students as well is that they have access to, they're in a very privileged position, regardless of what university they go to. One, they don't, I mean, a lot of a lot of students have to work, but they have more ability to take risk because 
They don't have a family yet. They don't have a mortgage. And if you're a college student, you can call up the CEO of a local bank. I, I remember reach, reaching out to the CEO of Bank Rhode Island, and they're willing to take a meeting with you because you're just a student. You're trying to learn. Um, and so I talked to college students about taking advantage of those resources available to you, which become a little harder to tap into once you've graduated and have different pressures. So I was fortunate that Brown had a director of social entrepreneurship named Alan Harlem, who coincidentally was also looking at this idea of US-based microfinance. And he really took me under his wing and helped me, because I'd never done community outreach. So he helped me set up uh, focus groups. And I speak Spanish, so we did focus groups in the Latino community. He helped me understand like how do you create a board of directors and incorporate a nonprofit and apply for tax exempt status. But you know, those re there are people who respond to authenticity, again, particularly if you're a student or just a young person, you know, or, or what have you, whatever age, and that's not the age, but just you, you know, that they can people can tell what your motivations are. And the biggest thing is be willing to ask. And I was not shy at all because I wasn't selling widgets, I was trying to so sell opportunity. So there were all sorts of people that opened doors. And again, because I was a student, our first staff, quote unquote, was, you know, uh, undergraduates at Brown who were our initial workforce. And then we got AmeriCorps Vistas. Um, and for several years, we had myself and Vistas. And the AmeriCorps program is incredible. We don't have time to get into it, but folks should definitely look at that if you're a nonprofit. And then the other thing I tell people is your job as a leader isn't to be an expert in every element. It's to create a vision in, in, around which people cohere to raise the funds, but then you bring in experts. So I have uh, my CFO has decades of experience in accounting and financial services and my underwriting team and, and that sort of thing. So um, that's the other thing is if you want to start an organization, the kind of expertise you need is different from, obviously, if you want to be a coder, you need to learn to code, right? You know, but I didn't need to understand how to run a bank in order to start the organization, I needed to have a vision and then bring in the right people to implement it. Your comments around, you know, university students is really resonating. I just went on some tours with my son and I'll tell you, I was like, man, I gotta go. I should go back to school. Like it just, everything's felt so fresh, you know, I don't know. It was, I was soaking it in and I, it's, I started recognizing like, I wish when I went to school when I was younger, I had the the maybe the wisdom that I would have now as a 51-year-old. And just the fact that, you know, the, anyways, it was very exciting. But that's a really good point. People can reach out and ask questions and get meetings. And I find, you know, if you're in that startup phase or if you're a university student, that makes a lot of sense. But there's some really interesting background on like microfinancing and, and kind of where it started. For listeners that maybe aren't familiar with that, would you can you share the origin story? Yeah. And just to wrap up the other piece, one thing I noticed, like college students are great at coming up with ideas, most of which are not workable and they don't have the experience to know why. But that's where having someone like Alan Harlem that could be a sounding board and say, OK, for you to do this, you know, here are the 10 things you need to think about. And then I go, ah, so it's not workable or it is, you know. So anyways, just wanted to add that. But yeah, the origin story of microfinance is really interesting. So it kind of started in two places. I'll focus on Dr. Muhammad Yunus since he won the Nobel Peace Prize for being, quote, the father of microfinance. So the, in his case, he was an economist in Bangladesh. Um, I think he was. this was in the wake of a famine in the 70s. And he was talking to women in the village about why they were struggling and because they had businesses that seemed to be succeeding. And what he learned basically was that in order to, you know, if you, to buy 
uh, a cow or if you were a weaver to buy your raw materials, they would have to take it out a loan. And the loans were at such high interest rate that almost all of their profits were going toward the money lender. And so uh, the famous story is that he get, lent out something like $26 was his first loan at very low interest to help these women buy what they needed without the, the usurious interest rates. And he just watched them be able to succeed with that. So he eventually turned that into what's now called Grameen Bank. And he pioneered this group lending model where women would form groups and they, there was some mutual responsibility and accountability. And it was extraordinarily successful to the point that, unfortunately, a lot of uh, venture capitalists and private equity companies realized that, oh, you could make a lot of money doing this. And so now there's kind of two types of microfinance. There's the Muhammad Yunus style, which is truly mission-oriented and just his whole approach is to charge an interest rate that covers your costs, and that's it. He doesn't even believe in any profit when it's related to serving the poor. Uh, but now there's, in India, there was a famous example many years ago of very large for-profit microfinance company that was charging such high interest rates and was pressuring people to the point that there were mass suicides because people couldn't bear the stress of their their collection practices, so it it, it kind of created a bit of a, a beast because of how successful his model is. But you know what he found is that when you did this, the women paid back, and he, he focuses on women. Um, and and in whatever context you see that, I mean, it's very popular in Latin America and in Asia, all, all over the world. And and lastly, I'll note in the U.S. The, the iteration of microfinance is primarily done through what's called community development financial institutions or CDFI, which we are one. That is a U.S. Treasury designation. Uh, it's a certification. You can be a bank, credit union, or just nonprofit lender and be a CDFI. And that was actually started by Bill Clinton when he was president in 1994. And he learned about Muhammad Yunus when he was governor of Arkansas. So he was a big proponent of that model. You spoke of um, being in 10 states. Do you have, a, like, is it a goal to expand to different states? Are you wanting to share your model with other organizations? Like, where do you see Capital Good Fund going or where do you want it to go? I was just talking to my general counsel this morning. You know, one of the challenges for us is that we're not a depository, so we don't take deposits. We're regulated state by state, and there are varying levels of onerousness associated with being a, a lender in those states. Um, so it, it, there's there's a limitation. Like, for example, in California, where I live, it probably would take us a year to get a lending license, and we probably don't have the capacity to just keep up with all the compliance rules. We are very eager to help other organizations replicate our model. I very much believe in the kind of creative commons approach to social impact, but it's it's difficult. There aren't a lot of organizations that really wanna take on our model. So in terms of like what our goal is, uh, when I started the organization, I had, I think three core goals. The first one of course was to achieve our mission. The second one was to do it at a scale that, make it, that could make a dent in the problem of, of poverty and climate. And the third was for us to get to a scale at which the revenue we generate from our, our activities could cover our costs so that we're not dependent on grants in perpetuity, which are fickle and fluctuating and onerous in their own way. So right now we're about 30% of our revenue comes from the interest that we charge on our loans, which is very modest. Um, 
And we're trying to get that to 100% by 2026. So, you know, I think we've proven our model and now it's really about scaling it up and generating some economies of scale. Uh, we don't need to add more states. There's plenty of people to be served in our 10 markets, although we are going to start lending in Pennsylvania in the next couple of months. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. As you describe the state-by-state uh, state approach, it almost seems like there's systemic issues that almost create obstacles to do this kind of work. And, and actually, I'd like you to comment on predatory lending as well, if you could. But just that's what it sounds like. I mean, is that is there any is there any truth to that? Yeah, federalism does create some challenges in, in the U.S. Um, yeah, it's definitely a barrier. I mean, even you know, if you're a depository, if you take, you know, if you're a bank or credit union, you you deal with your own set of regulatory challenges. Like, but if you're a federally chartered bank, say, you don't have to get a license in each state. But as you can imagine, the FDIC and the Federal Reserve have very, uh, as they should, stringent requirements. So it's it's a challenge regardless of the approach you take. Predatory lending is interesting because this is where we start to get into political power. Um, you know, up until the early 90s, there was no such thing as a payday loan, for example. That was something that people cooked up because other uh, ways to generate revenue through lending were drying up, were drying up. So uh, a payday loan, for example, is a typically three to 500, maybe $700 loan. And the idea is that you're getting advanced against your next paycheck effectively. So you go to a payday lender, you give them a post-dated check, and the idea is in two weeks, you might pay back $330 on a $300 loan. And, and that did not exist. Um, you know, in Rhode Island, for example, that's called the deferred presentment loan. And there was a carve-out created in the law to allow that. So any other type of lender has to follow one set of rules, like the, the max interest rate's 30%, so on and so forth. If you're a deferred presentment or payday lender, you can charge an equivalent APR of 261%. And the reason is that, you know, you, you pay something like $12 per $100 you borrow, which sounds reasonable, right? Again, I lend you $300 today, you pay back $330 in two weeks. What happens? Most people who can't come up with $300 today cannot come up with $330 in two weeks. And the payday lenders know that. So they say, no problem, we'll give you a new loan. Now your new loan is $330, probably plus some fees. And then the average person recycles that 
over and over and over again. So a $300 loan, if you keep it out for nine months, ends up costing you $700, say, in interest and fees. And, you know, that is money that people do not, uh, cannot afford. One of the most stunning statistics I've seen, and this predates inflation, is that a family making $26,000 a year in the U.S., which is, a, you know, poverty, spends as much on interest and fees and financial services writ large as it does on food about 10% of income. So when we think about you know, lending out at the highest interest rate we charge is 15.99 compared to 200, 300, 400% and more. That's money that literally goes to food on the table, keeping the lights on, you know, school supplies and so on. But payday lending now and, and those types of, there are different flavors, auto title and rent to own. It's roughly a $200 billion industry in the US. And one of our... Um, other outcomes is policy change. You know, I don't believe that you can social enterprise your way out of the problems that we face. You need to marry private sector with public policy. So a good example is in Illinois, they had been trying for a number of years to get rid of predatory lending. I think they were, the legal limit was like 540% APR. And that is not, I did not misspeak, 540 when the bill was heard in 2021, it was called the Predatory Loan Prevention Act. The legislature, the legislature was asking, well, if we get rid of payday lending and predatory lending, are there alternatives? So our role is to come in and say, yes, we have a product. And so we were mentioned on the floor of the House and Senate. That bill was passed. It established a 36% rate cap on all loans in the state. That is saving Illinois families $50 million a year in interest and fees. And that's a really good example of what I'd like to see it happen at the national level. There's legislation pa uh, proposed every year in the Senate and the House to establish a national 36% rate cap. But the political power of the industries that make a ton of money off these high interest rates pushes back. And we've, even in Rhode Island, by the way, we have failed to get rid of payday lending for 11 straight years because of the financial clout of the industry. You spoke of your dream about being a tennis pro. When you look back, what like kind of skill sets or what characteristics within yourself do you see that you had in order to now take you to where you are today and ultimately what you were able to be doing? I mean, it's like you're not serving a tennis ball, like you are serving an entire like 10 states of population of people who are incredibly need. What do you think is it within you that has made it so that you can be where you are today? Oh, I love this question because I don't get to speak to it a lot. You know, it's really funny. I always had this sense because my parents put me in private school. You know, my, my parents are both Jewish with PhDs and so there's a certain expectation about what your career path looks like. And I think I always felt like I was on this conveyor belt that was supposed to take me through private school and then Harvard and then become a doctor or something like that, right? And I never, I just, I always rebelled against that feeling of being on a conveyor belt. So there was like something, and I, don't, I think it was more intrinsic that I always wanted to step off of that. And it was the willingness to step off the conveyor belt that really enabled the rest of it. Like I've always said, I, I'm not just going to keep going this way. Uh, and for listeners, I'm just pointing ahead. <laughs> uh, I'm willing to step off. And then, the tr so I think my desire to be a tennis player was my attempt before I had anything more concrete to say, I want to step off and try something different. My, I was very talented. My heart wasn't quite in it. I was also undiagnosed bipolar. And so I just 
I couldn't focus enough. Um, but then the transformational moment for me was in 10th grade. I had an English uh, professor who, who modeled himself after Dead Poet Society. Like he wanted to be Robin Williams. Like, but he introduced me to romantic poetry with a capital R and, and philosophy. And that was like, okay, these were people rebelling against the norm, but they were doing it in a way that was creating art and beauty and you know, ideas. And that that kind of and then I started reading transcendentalism and you know Emerson and Thoreau. And so now my mind's starting casting about for I see alternatives to the conveyor belt. And I was open to finding something new. And the the seminal moment for me was the war, the lead up to the war in Iraq. So this was 2002, 2003. That was when things um gelled in terms of um giving something more concrete to my desire to step off that conveyor belt because I got interested in the protest movement. And at the time the motto was, or the slogan people were chanting was no war for oil. I don't know in hindsight, if it was a war about oil, but I said, okay, I, I was not able to stop the war personally. I'm going to protest by trying not to use oil. So I stopped driving and that really got me that was my first entree into the environmental movement, but my entree to environmentalism wasn't about saving trees, as important as that is. It was about the link between that and war and public policy, and, and then everything went from there. But it really, all of that stemmed back from that initial desire to say, wait a minute, hold on a second. I, I remember when I was an undergraduate, I had a professor of logic. And on the first day, he, he said, if, I, if you learn nothing else in this class, it's that you should question everything. And then he paused for an uncomfortably long time. <laughs> and he said, how come none of you question that statement? Right. And so that really resonated with me as well, because it, it really for me has been that, even though I didn't ask in that speak up in that moment of just questioning everything, including like fundamentally, like the things that undergird, undergird our society and what's expected of us. You mentioned um, having being diagnosed bipolar. What super strengths has that given you? You think as it relates to what you do, and it was really interesting to hear you light up around your story, like the energy shifted yeah. big time. Uh, not that neither wasn't good before, but it just it was this next level, you know. And 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 your path is so. And I'm just just wondering how being bipolar, that having that diagnosis, how has that helped you? Yeah, and I think I was lucky because I have the the more mild form of bipolar. You know, the the more severe form, you can have psychosis when you have manic episodes. I never had that, but I think during moments of hypomania, you know, your brain just and I'm medicated now, so I'm much more stable. Because really, it did start to get to a point in my mid twenties because I I'd still not been diagnosed. I'm a poet, so everyone was just like, "Oh, that's what poets are like." And I was starting to get to a point where I couldn't handle the ups and downs that well, and I got medicated and stable. But during moments of hypomania, there's something that happens in your brain where you just feel connections between things. And it's it's very liberating and powerful. And if you can kind of bottle that and turn it into something um, concrete and productive, uh, it's it's very powerful. And, and I am a published poet. And, you know, I think there are a lot of poets that, that, are, that are bipolar, you know, like Robert Lowell is a very famous American poet who, who had extremely severe uh, bipolar to the point it became debilitating, but I was lucky in the level I got just enough. It, you know, it's a little bit like sometimes people take like psilocybin, you know, um, to to kind of free up their mind and make those connections. I just had that, and I was lucky in that sense. I love that lucky. You know, what I mean, like I like and just recognizing what it brought to you. I just that's that's amazing. 
But I'm also lucky because, you know, my parents, were, my, my, my mom grew up dirt poor in Ukraine. My dad was lower middle class, but I never worried about money. Uh, I didn't, I didn't come out of college with a lot of debt. And so I was able to take advantage of that. Now there are a lot, I know a lot of people from my private school days who had a lot of money and their only goal is to make more money. So it's not a guarantee that you would do that, but still I was very fortunate to be in a position where I could pursue something like capital good fund. I wish that more people, there are a lot of, there are probably a thousand people like me who don't have that opportunity, who would take advantage of it if they could. And that's where things like AmeriCorps Vista and different fellowship programs can be so transformational because we do need more people working in the sector, as I said earlier. I feel very strong. Like we know how to solve climate change and poverty and hunger and all these things. We just don't have enough people implementing it. And we don't know that and that becomes a function of political will and, and who's lobbying for and who's working in these spaces. Yeah. Andy, how do more people find out for one about Capital Good Fund? But for people who are also curious of, they have this dream, they have this like big idea, what direction would you guide them in and being able to kind of put together all the puzzle pieces to to make what uh, might seem really big and daunting and like such a difficult task to be able to achieve to get it to the point of being able to have a program? So the first one, I'll start with the more vague one, which is somehow you need to internalize the, what I always point out is like, you know, when you, when you die, you're not going to put on your tombstone that like I paid off my student loans in a certain amount of time. You do have to be willing to take risks. And I guess I I recognize I'm in a privileged position to say that, but still you do have to be willing to step off that conveyor belt, which can be very uncertain because you're not stepping on to firm terra firma necessarily. So you do have to be willing to go into the unknown. But the other thing is that you have to ask. Um, I, every time I give a talk, I tell people, I, here's my cell phone, here's my email. If you want to talk to me about an idea, you want a book recommendation, you want an internship, contact me. I'm not going to contact you. I don't know you. Um, no one's going to give me a grant if I don't ask for it. And you will have to get over that. Uh, just remember, you're not selling widgets. I mean, if you're trying to sell widgets, I don't care. Like, don't, I'm not going to help you. But um, you have to be willing to go out and look at the resources. There are so many people in every sphere of life, doing good, they will talk to you. There are podcasts like this. There's books, there's blog posts, there's articles. There are, uh, you know, go to your university, uh, community groups. I mean, we have Google, we have AI, ask ChatGPT for, for all the resources that are out there. We're the, sort of kidding, but but it's just a question of like email, call, and, and you have to be like a dog with a bone when it comes to your, your vision. I always point out to college students when I give my talks that often it feels like we we spend more time researching what movie we're going to watch next than we do plotting out our career. So the thing I encourage people to do, even if you're changing careers, create a mission statement for yourself. Like for me, it was my mission is to operate at the intersection of poverty, race, gender, and climate. And create a rubric for yourself. Because the last thing you want to do is be presented an option, like an opportunity, like to go work for McKinsey not tie it back to your mission statement and your values. And 20 years from now, you find yourself, I actually have a book on my desk. It's called um, uh, When McKinsey Comes to Town. And it's all the ways that McKinsey has you know, helped the oil industry and the tobacco industry perpetuate injustice. You don't want to find yourself in that situation 20 years from now. But man, the resources are out there. You just have to go out there and, and, and be relentless in, in pursuing those things Again, if you're just trying to get rich, like people are going to tell and they're not going to want to help you. 
But if you're doing it with authenticity for a, a bigger purpose, man, people want to open doors for you. So the one thing we missed is how people learn more about Capital Good Fund. Oh, yes, of course. So, I mean, they can go to capitalgoodfund.org. And, you know, there are a number of ways that people can get plugged in. If you live in one of the 10 states we lend uh, operate in, you can apply for a loan, you can get financial coaching. Of course, people can donate right through our website. But also one of the key things that we do right now is we raise debt to finance our loans. And so people can make an impact investment. We have a couple different vehicles. Uh, but, but the basic idea is you lend us money, we use it to change lives, and we pay you interest. The interest rate that we offer depends on a couple of different factors. It's not going to be the same as if you lent to, I don't know, ExxonMobil, but it's still reasonable and has the benefit of being high impact. Uh, and so there, there's a contact form on their website. You can also email me. It's andy at capitalgoodfund.org. And I assume you could put that in the show notes. But yeah, definitely encourage people to reach out and find ways. To, I mean, we have opportunities for board service. Oops, sorry about that. We have opportunities for board service. We have opportunities for internship. We're always hiring. So there's a lot of ways to get plugged in with our work. Awesome. Love that high impact giving too. And that's another point. Love to tell you about the million dollar pledge and just, not, you know, nothing as sophisticated as what you're doing, but just interesting way to to, to bring a group of people together to, to create a fund that impacts you know, our local kind of area and community. I think there's a lot to that and people people do feel good about that. And and I think don't really recognize the options to do that because they're not always presented. So I'm so happy uh, you you shared that. We're going to go to takeaways in a moment. I, I expect Emily will, will wrap up with that. But is there a story you can share? Well, you're a storyteller. I love how you you know share your story. But just in terms of maybe something that has kept you going, a story about a client that was served in a way or or some something that you can share just to, to put a face to what you're doing and what Capital Good Fund does. We have so many. I mean, one of, as the son of an immigrant, our immigration loan is one of my favorites. And we had one gentleman that came to us who... He was from Africa. I forget which country. I think, oh, he's Senegal. He's from Senegal. And he'd been here for many years, but his family was in Senegal. And so we gave him a loan to do what's called a family petition where, you know, in America, he or she that has the best lawyer wins. And so he could not afford a good lawyer. We provided a loan to hire an excellent lawyer who was able to succeed in winning his family petition. We also included in that loan, once he won the case, money to fly his family over here. And so we were able to reunite the whole family, and now they're pursuing the American dream. Another example, a recent one comes to mind, is there was a woman who during COVID had a whole set of tragedies, divorce, got COVID, there was a fire, she was she ended up in, in a burn unit, and we gave a small loan just so she could kind of keep things together. Uh, then as she was recovering, she got another loan to like buy a computer to just start to rebuild her life. She then got financial coaching. And so she talks about how she was at her, you know, at her lowest point and had absent her loan, she could have very easily ended up homeless. And now she's in a place of, of stability and doing coaching and build, building a plan to rebuild her credit and, and that sort of thing. And I mean, we have myriad stories like that, which I'm glad you prompt me because as an entrepreneur, you can get very easily get lost in the, oh, I have a board meeting and I have to file this compliance report. And you forget to what end you're doing all of that work. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And sometimes that's, I have like, I, in my my own personal experience, you know, we offer coaching services, uh, executive coaching services and leadership coaching. 
And sometimes you're in, you're in it and you're going, why am I doing this? And then someone will contact you and say, oh, I was, you know, working with Emily or, you know, one of the coaches and you go, oh, this is why I'm doing it. Yeah, right. So, but I love those stories and I, it's important to, to, to and I, I imagine there's, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of them. So, so we got to unfortunately wrap things up because there's so much more to talk about. So over to you, Emily. Yeah. So Andy, at the end of all of our uh, Boiling Point podcasts, we both do takeaways. And so Dave, what is your takeaway from our conversation today with Andy? You're a renaissance man. There's a lot that I could jump into, but I like to question everything. I, it's kind of ties into, for me, being, you know, trying to remain curious. And, you know, even when you think, you know, question it, right? Because I I think it's, as I age, I, fight, I start to like look at the world in a certain way. And it's like, what? wait a sec, should I look at it this way? So I, I think that, and just this idea of stepping off the conveyor belt. You know, you talk about going to private school and you said, you know, you felt really fortunate. But like, you know, a lot of people, even very fortunate, can't get off that conveyor belt. And a lot of times we're coaching them in their 50s and 60s are saying like, I feel unfulfilled. I didn't, I didn't ever, you know, establish a mission. I kind of just followed a path. So, so the combination of those two things would be certainly big takeaways for me. What about you? Yeah, the conveyor belt analogy for sure. And it's interesting because sometimes I'll use the conveyor belt analogy with even just like if I'm laying in bed at night and cannot stop thinking about a certain thing. It's that like, okay, envision it on a conveyor belt and just let it fall off and then let it fall off. And, but that ability to actually be willing to get off the conveyor belt. And, you know, it's like that question of like me asking you about tennis and your desire, your dream to be a tennis player that like, and even hearing you speak about that, it reminds me of just even giving yourself permission to have those dreams. And by you giving yourself permission to do that, even though that wasn't necessarily where you went, it then opened up an even bigger avenue of other places to still be able to um, explore. But yeah, when we just don't even give ourselves that that's that space to think differently and the importance around, you know, speaking and sharing and speaking to high school students, speaking to people even younger than that, just like sharing our story about how we got to where we are to encourage other people to really explore different avenues. So Thank you so much. And we will have all of your information and any extras that we discussed in the show notes for our listeners. And the best place for everyone to find that is on our website at boilingpointpodcast.com. We're active on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and we put the video version, YouTube on Facebook. And of course, our podcast is available on all of your favorite podcast platform. So Andy, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. I look forward to keeping in touch with you and seeing where else your organization goes. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening. Follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or visit boilingpointpodcast.com for more. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. 
Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.